the current federal tax developments for February the 7th, 2022. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Capital Financial Education and by your State Society of CPAs. I'm Ed Zollers, and we're going to be talking this week about not a whole lot again that went on. Again, Congress continues to struggle with whether they're going to do anything with the continuing resolution or they're going to be able to pass any sort of tax changes. A lot of discussions going on there. That progress doesn't seem to be moving very quickly. Uh, certainly, it doesn't appear we're going to have anything to talk about anywhere in the near future. Uh, this week primarily was Joe Manchin again reminding everybody that uh, the Build Back Better Act was effectively dead and whatever they're going to do is going to have to start over in his view or at least certainly be pared back pretty dramatically. So don't really expect anything this week, although, again, with Congress, you never know. As soon as you think nothing's going to happen, suddenly everything happens. So we'll keep our eyes on it, but there wasn't a whole lot going on this week as people are ramping up for tax season. But we do have a couple of continuing controversies that we had from what we discussed last week. Take a look at the reaction we've seen so far to the IRS's clarification on the K-2 and K-3 filing requirements for partnerships and S-corporations. So we'll take a look at what we've seen this week, what I've seen with discussions, um, some of the ideas that are being put around, and kind of you know clear this up a little bit about what exactly does it mean, what's the consequences for you, what are the consequences of not doing it, potentially for your client or your partnership, and potentially for you, and then also what options do we have. We will discuss the IRS's interim filing method to electronically file these returns, and we'll discuss what the interim filing method is, which actually was discussed in December by the IRS and was telegraphed by them with a, uh, with an, a revenue procedure that we talked about last year for tax returns where the year began and ended in 2021 with the concept of what happens if the K-2 and K-3 forms aren't ready yet. Well, this is kind of an extension of that, and so we'll talk about what the interim filing guidance means and why you may very well be able to file those S-corporation and partnership returns without waiting for the IRS to develop the full-blown electronic filing support for those documents. We'll talk also about the uh, ABA's tax section held their virtual meeting this week. And one of the speakers at the virtual meeting in a session was the director of the Office of Professional Responsibility of the IRS. And we'll discuss some things that came up in her talk. Uh, specifically, she spent a lot of time, it appears, pure the articles that I've been able to come across describing what she did, talking about what's going to happen to the tax pros account. Uh, the expansion of that, how it's going to go. And before you get too much into, oh, wait a minute, the IRS at this point doesn't really matter what they say is going to happen because they're so far behind everything. I will remind you that tax pros actually came out right as scheduled a year ago. I know that because I ran across my old write-ups uh, when it was first discussed that gave us a start date last year and they met the start date. So I think there's a reasonable chance we will see them meet the, start, meet the date this year for these items. I don't think they'd be sending out the director of OPR to discuss these, you know, with a claim they'll be coming shortly, very shortly, with a specific date, actually, where they would have to be out by, unless the agency was pretty sure they were going to be able to meet that requirement. 
We'll also talk about an update on the status of the revisions to Circular 230. Those revisions have been discussed ever since the IRS threw in the towel after the Ridgely case and decided that, OPI, that basically Circular 230 did not necessarily, could not necessarily say control tax preparation issues, uh, you know, return preparation, that kind of background. So we'll see where we stand on those changes to the regs and especially maybe how they would respond to the Ridgely case. So we'll talk about things like that. With that, let me go ahead and just get started today. And we're going to take a look at uh, what we have here in the area of, we'll start with essentially, whoops, got this up here. We talk about these revisions to OPR. Let's talk about the K2, K3 issues. Get a little bit lost there in my notes. We're going to go back to the thing that happened, as we said, on January 18th, we mentioned last week, where the IRS had put out clarifications to the requirements for the instructions for Schedules K2 and Schedules K3. And those clarifications, and I think that's what the service would call it, essentially suddenly cause many people to realize that even their partnership that maybe had one rental building, you know, a, an office building sitting in the middle of Nebraska, owned by two people who have never left the state of Nebraska in their life, could still have to file all of the forms, the K-2 and K-3, and complete at least some portion of those forms in order to have a complete filing this year. And that caused a bit of angst because a lot of people were, you know, not thinking, thinking they could ignore that based actually totally rationally on an IRS sentence in the instructions that at best was misleading. Certainly it suggested that you only had to do the file the form if you had an item of international tax relevance, international relevance, relevance to international tax issues. Well, okay. And then parenthetically it said such as, and then it described foreign transactions and, you know, foreign partners. That, that would be for example. Now, that sentence didn't really say that those were the only things, or if you didn't have any foreign activities in your partnership and you didn't have any foreign partners, that these forms could be totally ignored. But it strongly implied that just because it says, you know, the kind of typical case is this, this is why you'd have to file it. I, as I said last week, and I continue to say, that is at the very best misleading with what we discover later in the instructions when they talk about the foreign tax credit information. And beyond that, probably we could easily say, um, you know, skips misleading and just was flat out wrong. You know, there, there's no way to say that typically it's those two problems when we discover that actually it's simply having partners who have brokerage accounts that is the sort of thing that's going to most typically cause a partnership to have to file K2 or K3. And so we talk about that issue. Now, the other thing that came up this week as this got more momentum, it was covered in the AICPA's monthly webcast from the tax section, talking about developments in DC, etc. And the AICPA confirmed in their webcast that the IRS is still holding to dates they announced in December that will make these particular returns unavailable for XML, for MEF XML electronic filing 
until after the due date without extensions for both returns. For partnerships, it would be just slightly beyond that date on March 20th. But for S-corporations, it would be all the way into the middle of June. And obviously, that's caused more than a little bit of panic, as a lot of CPAs, tax advisors, read that and said, wait a minute, right? That means I've got to put every single partnership and every single S-corporation on extension. And especially for the S-corporations, we're not going to be able to get them out until what the date was mid-June. And obviously, when you say a date, something's coming in mid-June, that means very clearly you don't really have a date. You know, the partnerships are March 20th. That's a solid date when we will have this available. But mid-June is, you know, it's kind of amorphous. You know, how late into June can one get and still have it be mid-June? And we divide June into thirds. I, you know, how do you, you know, I guess you'd be at least thirds, right? Beginning early June, late June, mid-June. Does that mean it could be all the way to the 20th of June before we get it? Is that mid-June? Uh, it, it's tough to know. And so that caused a lot of panic and angst. So we're going to talk a little bit this week maybe about clearing up some of that. The first real problem is when you take a look at Schedule K2 and K3, they are long forms. If I recall, the K2 for the 1065 is 19 pages. Right? So, I mean, it goes on for a lot of pages, a lot of documents. And the K3 is similar in size. I think it's a little bit shorter, but similar in size in terms of the K3. And the K3, remember, is going to be duplicated on every K1 you issue. So every partner's got to get a K3, which means, you know, you're looking at a lot of pages to be filled in and handled. And for a lot of people who have never had to worry about any of this stuff in their partnership, there's also been the fun, well, the form never existed for this year anyway, of also finding out where in your tax software these forms are going to be existing and how in the world are we going to get them out. Well, the big issue, I think, when you back away for a second, if you back off for a second from the form, I think you're going to find out pretty quickly that the real problem and why we're discussing this relates primarily if you only have individual partners or let's say individuals, estates, trusts, uh, you don't have a corporate partner. Corporate partners can add a couple of other things to it. But let's say you, you have that individual partner. The big problem that we hit is Form 1116. And the problem is that's the foreign tax credit form. The problem, if you actually look at the detail of the form, and that, that's something which I get a feeling some, you know, some people have been doing it kind of just throwing the numbers into the tax software and the tax software off the brokerage. They take their you know, income related to the foreign taxes. They have the, they have the dividend and you know, they have the taxes from that. It computes a number and they kind of just let it roll. Well, if you fill in the floor of 1116, you will discover, it's right there on the front page, that you're going to have to allocate to the foreign taxes a share of general purpose deductions. You know, deductions that aren't really tied to a specific type of income. Now, it include things like your itemized deductions or your standard deductions. And generally, this is done by a ratio of gross foreign income to gross income in total. 
and that gross income in total is where the problem arises. Because gross income in total is going to include the partner's share of the gross income in each category from the partnership. The partnership doesn't generally report the gross income, right? We're reporting, especially for anything that ends up on the line um, for non-separately stated income or loss, we're just reporting a net number there, right? We don't report the gross numbers. So the key problem here is an item of impact for international taxation will be gross you know, gross, gross income, gross income of some sort, of any sort from the partnership. If any partner is going to have to complete the form 1116, because that is an important, you know, th that's involved. They have the international transaction. Now, they may not know they have it, but the fact they have foreign taxes that were withheld from their T. Rowe Price International Fund, that is a foreign activity, foreign taxes. That is what's going to require us to file this form. Maybe. Now, there are a couple of outs, okay? But let's say first. So first, one thing which a lot of people are deciding may be the simplest way out. We'll talk about how you could avoid filing it altogether. But more than a few people have decided that that might not be practical. So let's talk about the first case, how you get this done. If your problem is primarily going to be there, which it probably is. You can look at the other provisions of the uh, K2, K3, and honestly, they either require the partnership to have such activities or they require the partner to be a corporation. There are some indirect ways the IRS describes in their update where you might have to put out some additional information if you're making payments from the partnership to an affiliate of an indirect or direct domestic partner for the base erosion anti-abuse tax, the BEAT, now, if you know much about the beat, you know that you have to have a lot of revenue. I mean, a lot of gross revenue worldwide uh, to be subject to the beat. So it's likely that unless you have a public company as a partner or a very large private company as a partner, you probably, even with a corporate partner or two, do not have a problem with the beat. But you do have the problem with the international, with gross income. So the real catch is to look at part two. Now, part two goes on for a number of pages, but what it asks for is gross income broken down by various categories. Now, most likely your partner won't really need all those categories. Again, that's another quirk. But discovering what they need and what they don't may, again, we'll talk about that issue and why may not be the best solution to try to figure this out to reduce what you have to do. So what we end up getting is we take a look at that. We fill that stuff in. Most, most software, when I've talked to people who use various software programs, they have K2 built in. The K2, K3 is built into the system. So it's not as if your software can't produce it. It seems like most software can. I've verified UltraTax produces it. I've, you know, I've been told that uh, CCHs, both ProSystem FX and Access produce it. Uh, LACERT produces it. So that's okay. We, we can produce the forms. That's fine. We're there, right? 
So we're just looking at filling that in, right? The problem is they will not transfer over from the other entry forms. They won't go back and say gross rents and go back gross real estate rents and pick that up from real estate rental entry forms. Various reasons for that, but basically it's not integrated that tightly. So yes, you will have to manually pick those things up and put them in the overall K2 line for US source and then let them flow out to the various partners, uh, normally using your standard partner allocation unless you use a special allocation. And I know in UltraTax, every, every little box on that you know, list of things for gross income has a partner allocation click box. So yes, you could actually handle all the special allocations as well. And in theory, very pot likely, once you got that set up, it would work just fine. Right? If there's some special allocation for some source of revenue, but not for others, you could set that up and it's going to be a pain the first year, but it, it could be done. Part three talks about a lot of special cases for foreign tax credit. Probably most of that won't be that important. You know, the average value of assets maybe is important. Uh, also potentially important uh, could be items related to the allocation of interest. You might have to produce some information about U.S. information if you have interest in the partnership, etc. But a lot of that still, the various pieces, because part three has a whole bunch of subparts, and you just check what you have to do. So a lot of people have determined that realistically, even if they say, I'm not, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna get this out by just doing this, I'm not gonna try to avoid doing the K2, I'm just gonna do the K2. Many of them have found, especially in a partnership that is just literally, you know, a building sitting in the middle of Nebraska, commercial building in Nebraska, there's not going to be a whole lot on K2, right? It's going to be very few lines on K2 to get filled in. And so because of that, you'll just mark the others as inapplicable. You'll fill in those boxes and you'd create the, K, the K2 form and the K3 forms. That would go to the partners. Okay, that's the key. However, there is an option. You can get the information from your equity holders that can allow you to not have to prepare this form. Now, your equity holders need to tell you that they are not going to be required to file Form 1116. Now, what the instructions appear to mean by that is a little bit interesting. So, we'll talk about this. It certainly implies strongly this is how it works. If your partner has only foreign taxes coming to them from, let's say, a brokerage account, so 1099-DIV, 1099-INT, or from K-1s, all that income is of the passive category. Now, this is not 469 passive, you know, like passive activity versus participation, because why would we want to use the same term consistently throughout the tax law? We don't. This means the foreign tax credit version of passive, which generally means, is it investment style income like dividends and interest? So essentially, if your partner's only getting foreign tax credits, from you know, withholdings on dividends, from amounts of being paid for dividends, foreign taxes being withheld from dividend payments. If that's the main place, if that's the only place they're getting it from, which for probably a good 90% of my clients, that is the only place they're getting it from, then as long as the total amount of that credit is less than $300, or if married filing joint, $600, 
then instead of filing Form 1116, they have the option to go directly to the credit line on, you know, on, what is that, Schedule 3? Whatever schedule we have it on. Uh, you know, I've lost track with the schedules, what's where. I know it's the one that has the credits, whatever that is. And I don't worry about the numbering scheme too much. But anyway, you know, we just take it directly to the line. We pick up a foreign tax credit. We're good. Now, if we do that, there are a couple of restrictions. One of the key ones being that you cannot use any carryovers into the year and you can't carry over any unused amount into future years if you use the shortcut method. However, the shortcut method, 99 times out of 100, I would say, ends up, if anything, increasing the amount that you're getting as a credit. But number two, uh, ends up being way simpler and there's just no, the cost, the cost of doing the full-blown form versus any minor benefit you might get from a carryover that you could use this year or a minor carryover you could get next year generally isn't worth the bother. So if all of your partners tell you that they either have no foreign taxes so that they have to do 1116 for, or tell you that they're going to qualify, you know, that they're, they're not going to be above the limits or get any type of income that wouldn't allow them to do the no 1116 filing, then you have to file the form. Now, the problem with getting that statement from the partners is how many partners will have any clue what you're asking about? And that's led a number of people to decide that the cure might be worse than the disease. That is, attempting to avoid filing K2 and K3 and getting the documentation necessary so the partnership is not at risk of being charged with failing to file a partnership return. And that is technically what the IRS is threatening. Uh, they made that very clear in their relief provision we discussed earlier in the year, which is why I thought the big issue was that relief provision. That relief provision primarily said if you could not get the information from the partners that would go on the K-2. That's different from saying you can't get the information from the partners that tells you you don't have to do it. That's a different problem. There are some items on there where you need to have information from the partners to, you know, to see, to report the numbers that go back to them, etc. If you're unable to get that information after, you know, making a good faith effort to do so, well, then you're allowed to get out of the penalty for this year only. But the interesting part was, the IRS said, if you didn't qualify for a good faith effort, the penalties you would sub could be subject to would be the failure to file the partnership return penalty, Failure to provide the information return to the partner, which is the K-1. Failure to provide the information return to the IRS, the IRS copy of the K-1. Those are three separate penalties that run monthly and also can get very, very expensive over time. So most people would prefer not to risk those penalties, even if it may not be very likely the IRS will actually go after you for them. You just don't want that. And a couple concerns I have, it would give an agent a bargaining tool, and I know they're not supposed to bargain, but let's be honest. It would give them a very, very much a way for you to be um, very compliant, shall we say, about other adjustments they wanted on the return to avoid getting nailed with those penalties, which would be essentially a slam dunk. The agent, if you're not, if they're not upset with you about the other things, they might be very generous about seeing there was reasonable cause for not doing it. And if you are being a bit of pain on those things to the, in the agent's view, they might be a little more, let's say, skeptical of reasonable cause for this.
So therein lies our problem and also why people are saying, okay, we're just going to prepare it, period. I'm not going to bother every partner. I'm not going to have them call their CPA, their CPA call me. You know, we go back and forth. I'll be told, I can't tell you the answer to this question until I see the K-1. And you're telling me you can't do the K-1 until you see the answers. Yeah, you know. They need the partnership return to be filed before they can tell you for sure because they don't know what's coming out in your partnership return. And you're telling them, you know, and you're saying, well, I, I need to know from your guy before I can do the partnership return because we don't want to do the K-2, K-3. You can see how that goes wrong. You can see how you'll also have clients that decide, as I know, I would have at least some partners in partnerships. That would be like, well, I don't know. Maybe, may, I, you know, it, it could be that, that I'm going to get all this, you know, foreign income from a brokerage, or maybe there's this partnership, or maybe, I don't know, maybe I, I heard about somebody who, who discovered, didn't know, and then suddenly got a K-1 for stuff they inherited from their aunt, you know, from their aunt's estate. And well, if, if that had, if that had extra foreign taxes, I might be in a position where I wouldn't qualify for the shortcut and then I'll go to Leavenworth. And it's like, oh no, right, all that stuff. So in any event, we're seeing a lot of people saying, hey, we're going to skip it. But the skip it problem becomes an issue. Remember, we told you not going to be able to accept ready to take electronic filing until a later date. Well, want to remind you to go back and look at something that back when you thought you didn't have to worry about this, you probably skipped over. But back on December 3rd, it became clear to the IRS that they were not going to be ready to accept electronically filed K-2s and K-3s by the original due date for the partnership returns for the S-Corp returns. So what they said was they announced on the 3rd of December that they did not expect to be able to accept the electronic via the standard MEF XML systems, right? They didn't really expect to be able to accept those until March 20th for Form 1065, mid-June of 2022 for the 1120S, and not until all the way into January of 2023 for Form 8865. Well, okay. So the problem comes, well, does that mean we have to extend the return? And the answer is no. You know, because you might be a large enough partnership to be required to file electronically and you're being told that you can't do it this way. Well, the IRS said there is an alternative to filing via the electronic system. And the instructions tell you basically that because modernized e-file will not be available, right? It's going to take a while to get that. If you file electronically, if you electronically file your return before the time frames, that what they call the interim period, submit the schedules as separate PDF files attached to each return. So, generally, I would need to have a PDF of the Schedule K-2, and I would need a PDF of every shareholder's K-1, every shareholder's K-3 to attach to their K-1. I need to submit that electronically to the IRS. Now, that sounds like it's going to be a real pain, right? Well, it would be, except we are seeing many signs that tax software vendors are, you know, it, it's kind of obvious they're supporting this version. I know for a fact that UltraTax uh, has it set up that way. 
Uh, we use UltraTax in my office. UltraTax will, no problem. You can electronically file an S-Corp return with a K2, with K2s and K3s, right? No problem. It'll set that up. It will handle it. It will electronically file the package. That means what it's doing is, it's just creating a PDF, a PDF K2 and PDF K3s. Now, currently for partnerships, if you try to do, if you basically put something on K2 and try to file, you're told that, you know, basically, you know, they're, they're not yet ready to do that. An update will be necessary to file the K2s and K3s. Now, part, now you may wonder, well, why they do S-Corps and not partnerships? Well, I think it's pretty clear that S-Corporations with a mid-June date, that's not reasonable. Uh, people are not going to wait that long. They do immediately, you know, if you're the tax software provider, that that's the one we need to get up and running first. Because if you manage to miss a date, if you miss the partnerships, you know, five days after the due date, we're allowed to file that return. So while I have upset customers, I'm not pushing everything off until June. So more likely, they're going to be happier with me in that regard. The partnerships would be the second one to come. My guess is they will get the PDF in, so you could file them before March 15th. But again, in that case, March 15th doesn't seem like that big a deal. I'm certain they're trying to get clarification from the IRS. Are we going to have to switch on a dime? That is, the minute you allow the XML, you know, the, X, the MEF XML filing, we have to reject all, you know, we have to say, nope, got to go back, get our update that now allows that type of filing and compute the return under that and submit it back up. And if that's true, they might want to avoid that problem. So they might see if they could get by with waiting until March 20th and just have people extend and file five days later. There are valid reasons you might want to do that for the, uh, just for the simple fact of being able to do a superseding return all the way until September 15th, and for a partnership that can't opt out of the Bipartisan Budget Act audit regime, that might not be a bad thing anyway. But we'll see. In any event, though, you know, be aware of that. Yes, we're seeing a lot of talk about it. Yes, we're seeing a lot of heat about it. Yeah, and the catch is new people keep finding out about the K2, K3 issue daily. And so then a whole nother string of discussions start off about the filing issues. So yeah, just, just, just keep your eyes, you know, keep calm. Uh, do take a look at your software vendor. See what they're doing. Don't be surprised if you get an update that allows the PDF filing, you know, and that that'll be the method you'll be using, at least for this year, or at least on S-Corporations. Partnerships, probably anyone you put on extension will be under the standard XML system, assuming that the IRS actually gets that up and running. Okay, a couple of other things this week. We had, as I said, the American Bar Association tax section had its virtual meeting this week. And we're going to talk about an article that appeared in Tax Notes Today Federal on the 7th of February uh, by Nathan Richmond. And this article discussed a, you know, a session where the Office of Professional Responsibility Director, Sharon Fisk, discussed the Tax Pros account. Uh, now, you may remember the Tax Pros account was introduced last year. The main thing the Tax Pros account allowed you to do as a tax professional was to submit electronically requests for clients to sign on a power of attorney, which they could do electronically, 
or an information authorization request. And once they had done so, then we could turn around and, you know, go directly in, immediately sign it ourselves to accept the appointment, and then immediately have access to the taxpayer's transcript data, which is really helpful, right? Really something that, that's useful and very quick. It can be a very fast turnaround. Also look at account information and some other basic facts for the taxpayer. Now, it was limited, very limited, is limited still. It's only for individual returns, basically with a few other areas that get involved, a few other technical areas, but for your basic 1040 filing issue is what this is here for. But we are looking at, and what the director said, is they're looking at expanding up the program. And in fact, they're on track to add a number of things by the end of the third quarter 22. That's IRS third quarter 22. Third quarter of fiscal year 22 to the IRS is essentially the quarter that runs from April 1st until June 30. So meaning we should have these in place by July 1st, right? These are the issues. So what are they talking about? Supposedly by this summer, you know, by basically July 1st, we should have the ability to view and print our powers of attorney and information authorizations once they've been approved. We'll be able to have a search function that could allow us, if we have a lot of authorizations, a lot of power of attorneys on file, uh, to find a particular client's authorization in the file so we can quickly get it. We can print it out. Presumably, if we can print it out, we could then, I would hope, be able to use that. We're on the phone with the IRS and somebody can't, says they can't see it. You know, or they can't get access currently or trying to get some information across. In theory, hopefully we'll get it, be able to get it back so that we could use it for that purpose, even though it should, be, in theory, be in the CAF file. They'll do something that's going to be very helpful if you use the current system. In the current system, you tell the client you need to go sign this electronically. Okay, great. The only way to know if the client's done it is to go back in regularly and see if that yet has shown up as one that you can then sign, accept, and move forward. The system does not tell you when your client goes in and signs the form. We are told that coming this summer, that is going to be there. There will be an email notification and an app notification, an app notification when clients have electronically signed the authorization. So we don't need to do that. Uh, we'll also get, if you use a current system, you may have noticed, you have to complete the, P, the power of attorney or information authorization request in one sitting. You know, you have to get it ready for signature. You have to start, go through everything, and submit it to the client for signature all in one sitting. If for whatever reason you're interrupted, right, you have to get out, you have to leave, you got to go do something, you're going to start over again when you come back to it. You cannot save your work in progress. We are told that coming this summer, right, coming before July 1st, we should have the ability to save the work in progress, right, to do that. And finally, this just helps clean it up. If you use it very much, you notice this problem. Some clients, you try to get them to sign electronically and they just aren't capable of ever doing it. So you have this buildup of authorization forms you've requested to clients and yet they, they're unable to do it, so they just don't do it. They don't get to it. Maybe the issue is resolved before they get to it. Various things, we just build up these requests. There are things sitting there waiting for a client to sign that obviously a client's never going to sign. 
right? That's a problem. So they say they will have a expiration system that will allow uh, basically authorization that have been pending for 120 days without a taxpayer signature to be automatically removed from the system. So they clean that out a bit. Now they also talked, she talked about some changes to expect by the following year. That will include being able to see all of your outstanding authorizations, whether or not they're made via the tax pro system on this. So you see your entire CAF file, you know, what, who, who are you still have live powers of attorney or live information request authorizations for? Now, the system they're developing, which apparently is now being called claim a calf internally, catchy, right? They, they may rename that before it goes out, but they'll do that, right? Um, that allows you to get a list of everybody you're on authorization for, which gets rid of the current system, which is the CAF 77 procedure, uh, which is basically a freedom of information request, especially a freedom of information request to the IRS, getting from the IRS a list of all parties for which you are currently authorized under a power of attorney. And actually, she recommends you get that anyway. You know, when you get that, and we'll do that. Also, tax pros will become the single site uh, for all IRS online services. If you're aware right now, there's this weird mix. They have to go into the tax pros site to do some things, have to go into your old IRS account, do other things. Yeah. No, they're going to make they're going to make basically the tax pros site the one site for tax professionals to have all of their information on the IRS site. And new maintenance features will be added, so they'll let you withdraw authorizations, allow the taxpayer to revoke your authorization, uh, lock out users who attempt and who attempt and fail to submit authorizations too many times. That's obviously a security issue there, figuring that that they're trying to they're trying to just you know do a brute force attack to get in to make it happen and allow taxpayers, rather than only tax professionals, to initiate a power of attorney authorization form. So they could go in, you know, fill in the form to authorize what they want you to see. I don't know how many of my clients do this. Some corporate clients though probably would, uh, with corporate tax departments, and allow them to set up the authorization form and then set it up and tell you to go back in and just sign the acceptance on it, fill in whatever would be necessary there from your end, and that could then get the process running like that. So certainly keep your eye on tax pros. Uh, as I said, what the limited uh, the limited things it does today, it does do very well. So be aware of that. Uh, you might want to get in as these other things come online. But also in that talk, she had she went on to talk about some other things too. She noted that Treasury has finished its review of the proposed revisions to Circular 230. Now, that's important because this has been talked about for a long time, going all the way back to shortly after the 2014 Ridgely decision, when the IRS lost in the, in the D.C. district on the question of whether or not they had the right to do things like bar uh, Circular 230 professionals from doing a refund claim for a contingent fee, right? Where you would get a percentage of whatever was recovered. The district court said, and the IRS has eventually accepted, that there is no authority under the law that authorizes the OPR for the OPR to regulate tax return preparation by individuals. You don't need to be a CPA, an attorney, or an EA to prepare a tax return. As such, the, they ruled 
That was an overreach. There was no authority there. The IRS had overreached its authority, in essence. And what the court kind of said was, if you bought the IRS's theory that because you represented somebody for the IRS, you had signed a, you know, signed a power of attorney, you had involved in an exam, a notice, whatever, that they had the right then to regulate all of your activities, essentially. They could have done everything according to their theory, and that's what the court pointed out. The court didn't think that Congress had meant to allow OPR to regulate everything this person did, because tax preparation, they said clearly, is not, rep is not representation for the IRS, because you don't need to be a Circular 230 practitioner to prepare tax returns. And, you know, in theory, under the law, this is governing this restricted authorization of practicing before the IRS. Now, you know, the IRS has told us they're not going to follow Ridgely. There is some concern about what Ridgely, how Ridgely applies if you are an enrolled agent. The reason there is because that category is one where the IRS essentially, remember, the, the law says that basically by statute, once you receive your CPA certificate, uh, you know, the formal one, we have, we still have those dual licensing states that are weird. It needs to be the a license, shall we say, whatever you're going to call that. Most states, if you got your CPA certificate, you're licensed. If you stop being licensed, you lose the certificate, right? The way it works. But not in all states. But if you have that, you're authorized to practice. If you are admitted to the bar, you know, practice before the highest court in the state, in the state, any of the states, you're allowed to practice for the IRS. But the IRS was then authorized to allow other parties to practice. And the question there becomes, because that is a generic grant, that's one where, you know, it's not like with a CPA or an attorney where there is another regulatory body that is granting the license and it is imposing standards of various sorts on the attorney, on the CPA. You know, it seems arguable that, it seems you could argue that the IRS has the right to impose standards on enrolled agents, aside from, you know, determine who could come into practice, aside from just, yeah, never, 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 you know, just, just, just don't, don't foul up the representation rules once we let you in. You know, I mean, how, how are we going to determine who to let in if we can't really do anything but just deal with the representation. And frankly, if that was the way we ruled it, it'd be an interesting question where the EA exam is currently constituted would be valid. Uh, you know, the theory is because it concentrates mainly on issues of tax. I realize tax law is in there, but it's a lot of preparation style view of tax law, which, you know, you might say, well, that's not really. The unique thing here is representation. But I think the government would say there probably is a vested interest in having somebody who has demonstrated some skill, you know, in tax preparation, uh, you know, has understanding of the basic tax law, etc., that we're going to let them in, you know, if we're just going to let this open to anybody with no other qualification aside from, I want to be, you know, I want to do this, you know, we could test for that stuff and we can regulate that stuff. But it seems highly likely that after Ridgely versus Lou, the IRS is probably going to back off of the any contingent fee limitations, a bunch of the other things that directly were limited to preparation of the return. But so far, the problem is you just really don't know which other things they're going to back off on and what they're going to do. So we are looking forward to seeing this.
Now, she did say that while they have completed their review, um, all she would say is they hope to get a draft of these regulations and Circuit 230 regulations out by the end of the year. So we may see a revision to 230, but you know, keep your eyes open. It may take a while. This has been the current federal tax developments for the week of February the 7th, 2022. Current federal tax developments brought to you by your cap by Kaplan Financial Education and your State Society CPAs. Uh, I'm Ed Zollers, as normal, coming to you again this week from Phoenix. I will be checking in, you know, and I do check the email address, edzollers at currentfulltaxdevelopments.com. If you have any questions, you can look there. I also check in on the Connect sites uh, for the CPA societies in Arizona, New Jersey, Illinois, Minnesota, Washington. I also take a glance into Idaho's segment, so we see things there. So if you have any questions, comments, and you're, on one, you're a member of one of those societies, you can go ahead and check at those locations. You could post something, and if I think I'd be of help, I'll try to pop in on it. But otherwise, we've got another week under the belt. One more week to go. Uh, you know, we got one, one more week to go. We're one more week into tax season. Uh, next week, we'll be here on Valentine's Day. So, hey, what wonderful. Uh, yeah, remember that. If you've forgotten Valentine's Day, Monday, February 14th, that's Valentine's Day, right? Don't forget that. That can be awkward if you forget it. So just, just, just reminding you, don't forget that day. We'll see you there on Valentine's Day. I'm sure that, that that's what your Valentine will want to listen to as a tax update. Yeah, I wouldn't give this as a gift. I'm just saying. But otherwise, we'll see you there next week on current federal tax developments.